This is Evidence-Based GI, and I'm Philip Schoenfeld, Editor-in-Chief. Today, we'll be discussing head-to-head trials of treatments for ulcerative colitis, specifically the landmark Varsity trial, which compared vetalizumab versus adalimumab for the treatment of moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. With us is Dr. Jessica Allegretti, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, as well as the Director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So welcome, Dr. Allegretti. And, you know, why is this such an important topic? Thanks for having me, as always. And, and so I think this study is really critical. You know, it's a really important study in our space because many of our studies compare biologics to placebo. And so when you look at guidelines, you see that the guidelines will recommend X treatment, you know, is better at treating ulcerative colitis compared to placebo. But when we're actually talking about staging these therapies, what order should we actually be using them in? The answer is always, well, we don't have any head-to-head studies. And so this was really the first head-to-head study that actually compared two active treatments in this space And so this really was a landmark for us. And there have since been more that are either underway or have been been done since. Yeah, that really is the key with so many different biologic therapies for moderate severe ulcerative colitis. We need these head-to-head RCTs to help us determine what should be first-line therapy while recognizing different patient-specific factors that influence those choices. So just to review quickly, so the Varsity study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019, was a randomized, double-blind, what we call double-dummy trial that looked at patients with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. That meant they had a score of at least 6 out of 12 in the Mayo score, which takes into account stool frequency and the endoscopic appearance, as well as blood in the stool and the physician's assessment of the patient's symptoms. So the patients were moderate to severe, and they received either vetalizumab, where they got a standard loading dose, followed by taking 300 milligrams IV every eight weeks, or adalimumab, where again, they got a standard loading dose, and then were taking 40 milligrams sub-Q every two weeks, and it was a 52-week trial. Now, they looked at about 769 adults, and the primary outcome was clinical remission. That meant you had a score of zero to two out of the total of 12 points on the Mayo score. Really, that you had pretty much resolved almost all of your symptoms. You'd have a little bit of loose stool, a tiny bit of blood, maybe a little bit of erythema on your scope, but otherwise you were pretty much healed up. They also talked about endoscopic improvement, meaning that you had a score of only zero or one on your Mayo score. And What they found at 52 weeks was that vetalizumab was superior to achieving clinical remission. 31% with vetalizumab versus 22.5% with adalimumab, and that for endoscopic improvement, meaning you got your score down to 0 to 1, which just means normal mucosa or a little bit of erythema, a little bit of friability, that had occurred in 40% on the patients on vetalizumab versus 28% on adalimumab. Now, 
there was a little bit higher likelihood of achieving corticosteroid-free remission with the adalimumab group. But I'd also note that there were fewer infections in the vetaluzumab group too, which might be expected because, you know, that's an anti-integrin monoclonal antibody that works in a different way than adalimumab, which is obviously an anti-TNF agent. So taking into account all those that data, you know, what do you do in your own practice, Dr. Allegretti? How do you choose between using an anti-TNF agent like infliximab versus an anti-integrin agent like vetaluzumab or even using a small molecule like ozonamide or using one of the newer JAK1-specific inhibitors like upadacinatinib? Because, boy, there are different pluses and minuses to each of those when you're sitting down with a patient with moderate to severe UC symptoms. Yeah, so I think this is a little bit of the art of IBD. So we still don't have, you know, head-to-head trials of all of these studies. We have certainly some network meta-analyses that help us think through how to potentially stage these. And I think the more we know, we know that agents often do work better before anti-TNF use. So as best as you can sort of either withhold your anti-TNF use to further down the line, unless the patient has very severe disease, that's probably better. And so when I have a patient with ulcerative colitis, moderate to severe ulcerative colitis in front of me, you know, unless there are reasons to use an anti-TNF, such as they've got severe extra intestinal manifestations that may require it, or say they're hospitalized with acute severe UC, then I'm preferentially using vetalizumab, ustekinumab, or ozanamod. I think all are on the table. And I think a lot will then depend on the patient's disease severity, the patient's individual risk factors, and their patient preferences. For example, is this a patient who really does preferentially prefer an oral therapy because maybe they travel a lot or their schedule just doesn't allow? Then you may want to consider ozanamod. But if this is a patient who really values, you know, the convenience of an ejection every eight weeks, great, you could consider ustekinumab or maybe they really don't want to have to think about anything on their own. They want to show up to an infusion center and just get the infusions. So I think there's options for everybody. I think the safety profiles of all three of those agents that I just mentioned are all excellent. And so I think they are they really are good choices for first line, again, depending on the individual patient factors. I can tell you in my practice, the majority of the time I'm using vetalizumab first line, you know, in a, say, a mesalamine failure population. I think regardless of which of those you've chosen as a first line, you've certainly got the any of the others as second line. And then I think we're really waiting to use that anti-TNF further down the line because we know it's still likely to work. And I would say with regards to anti-TNFs and ulcerative colitis, I am my preference is infliximab. I don't use a lot of adalimumab in my ulcerative colitis patients. And I think, you know, the, the varsity study, I think really helped sort of clarify what we were seeing with adalimumab in ulcerative colitis patients. And then, of course, with the JAK inhibitors, both uh, tofacitinib and upacitinib, you use them after an anti-TNF. That's how they're labeled, so they can't be used first line. And so because of the nature of how we're using anti-TNFs now, they're really, unfortunately, pushed to the back of the line. The good news is, though, that they still work in multi-failure patients. And so uh, we are seeing excellent, you know, some of the best numbers we've ever seen with the upacitinib data, and it still works in a multi-failure population. So that's the good news there. So, you know, when we've talked before, the pregnant patient population is certainly different. So if you've got a woman in her 20s or 30s and is considering getting pregnant, you know, that changes the equation a little bit. 
what do you usually do for those patients? Yeah, so I think a lot depends on what where they actually are at in family planning. Just because they're a woman of childbearing age to me doesn't mean that I necessarily limit any options for them. You know, if a, a young woman, I will start them on methotrexate. I will start them on any therapy that is best to treat their disease. I think the discussion is different if the patient tells you that they imminently want to start getting pregnant. And, you know, I always say, well, we need to get you into deep remission first. We know that that's going to be the best outcomes for you. But there are some therapies that you would probably avoid in a patient who is actively trying to get pregnant. So I would say the majority of our therapies are safe and there is a lot of great data. There is not enough data right now surrounding Ozanamod and there is animal model data to suggest that there may be concerns with the JAK inhibitors. So we certainly don't want to use those therapies in a patient who is very soon or actively going to be trying to get pregnant. Now, if the patient tells you, I don't know when I want to have kids, it may be years away from now. I mean, certainly use those therapies. Don't withhold them just because the woman is of childbearing age. Please don't let that be the take up for this. But if the patient is actively trying to get pregnant, um, you want to avoid those therapies. Yeah, I, my impression is we have pretty good data from the piano registry that if a woman is actively trying to get pregnant, may be better to use an anti-TNF agent because we have more data to show that that is safe in pregnancy and obviously keeping them from having a UC flare during pregnancy leads to better outcomes for their babies. Yeah, I think, yeah, certainly there's a plenty of data on anti-TNFs. I think we have enough data now, certainly in Stellara and Betalizumab as well. I have no issues with either of those agents. And so I think it depends, again, on where the patient's at, what they've tried on previously uh, to determine the best therapy option for that patient and their future baby. How about if they have any other autoimmune disorders, like if the patient has any evidence of eczema or atopic dermatitis, is that going to change your protocol? Yeah, so I think, again, that sort of falls into those patient factors. So, you know, I think, are there other comorbidities or other diseases that you may need to take into consideration? Skin conditions, certainly we know that the IL-1223s and the IL-23s have a lot of great utility in. So you can kind of kill two birds with one stone, for example, psoriasis as well. Whereas, say, if the patient has pretty significant joint pain, arthralgias or arthritis, the JAK inhibitors can work really well in that setting, as do the anti-TNFs. So I think certainly other autoimmune conditions or extraintestinal manifestations definitely need to be considered in the equation because you may preferentially choose one therapy over another to try to mitigate those. Similarly, you have to take the individual risk factors into account. Does the patient have an active cancer diagnosis? Do they have uh, you know significant conduction abnormalities? I think depending on the risk of each of the drugs, you would weigh all of those risks and benefits to make that treatment decision. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. This is incredibly important information for our audience, and we look forward to talking with you again in the future. Thanks as always for having me.